The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you're just joining us, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy to preach to you the word of God. And uh, if you don't know, uh, I've got a young family. We've got four kids. And so what that means, uh, four under the age of 13, and what that means is this time of year, um, we're basically a germ factory. So um, someone is always sick, and we're always fighting through it. And so the last three weeks, two, three weeks ago, uh, kids were sick. My wife was singing, so I had to stay home and miss the service. And then um, we flip-flopped last week. And now I think everyone is here. I had some kind of virus this week. Fever broke on Monday or Tuesday. Felt fine. You know, over, you know my body felt fine. It's just... Uh, got some stuff in my chest and struggling through it, uh, but the ministry must go on, and we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, and I've done all the exegesis, I've done all the study, uh, and though I had my sermon prepared, I didn't just want to give it to somebody else to deliver, and so this morning, hopefully, the Lord will sustain me in this. I apologize, um, unless, you know, you're like, you're into like, I've never had Darth Vader preach to me before, you know, <laughs> if that's, you know. If that's your thing, well, lucky you. Today you get it. Um, but uh, hopefully the Lord will sustain me. We're probably going to record this, and we might even play it. At, have to play the video in the second service, depending on how my voice holds up. Um, I am not the most reserved uh, communicator in the world. And so, <laughs> and so we will see what happens. I'm gonna, I need to, I don't know. We're just going to see. So let me pray. We're going to ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, um, this morning I'm very aware of my own weakness. We're missing an hour of sleep and um, just under under sickness this morning. I'm very aware that my abilities to communicate um, is not what's going to produce produce any fruit in the lives of your people. Uh, Your word is what has the power latent in your word um, is your spirit that does the work. And so I ask as your word is proclaimed and expounded this morning that your spirit would speak to your people. Um, people that are tired, people that are struggling, people that are in the midst of great difficulty and sometimes wondering if you're there, wondering if you care, wondering if it's worth it, uh, wondering if you will sustain them, wondering if you're real. Uh, I pray that you would speak a better word to your people this morning. Um, Just give them grace upon grace. We know that you promised to meet us here, and so we come expectantly, and we listen with open hearts, ready to hear your word, because you speak to your people. So think through my mind this morning, Lord. Speak to my vocal cords. Would it be all of you and none of me? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we have already heard, Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 27 this morning of chapter 1 in the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Um, In this short section of Scripture, we're going to get a glimpse of the Apostle, a little bit, a a glimpse of the Apostle Paul's job description. As we come to find out, Paul has a very difficult job. Uh, It's got some rather significant hazards that come along with it. And yet, in spite of all the hazards that are inherent in his job description, Paul still has the ability to rejoice. He's got a resiliency that's a mystery. 
And today we're going to see just how does this guy remain positive and hopeful in the midst of all of his suffering that he's experiencing. In verse 1, Paul says that he actually can, he actually is rejoicing in his sufferings. He isn't just persevering. He's actually rejoicing in his sufferings. In other words, he's using his suffering as a means to find greater joy in God. His suffering is a diving board that he uses to spring into a greater, deeper, more lasting joy in God. Now, the question is, how does he do that? Well, I'm going to try to answer that question for you, but before I do, I want us to know that this isn't just an intellectual exercise for us this morning. What we're going to see is that Paul's job description as an apostle and our job description as followers of Christ are not that much different. Now hear me out here. They're different in intensity, but they're not, di- they're not different in kind. Okay? We might not ever suffer exactly like Paul did, but every faithful follower of Jesus will suffer some, and as we learn how Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, we can learn how to do the same. Because suffering is kind of a neutral thing in one sense. It's not necessarily a good or a negative. It really depends on where you're at and your attitude in suffering, what suffering is going to do for you. For some, suffering hardens. Suffering can cause someone to walk away from the faith. For others, like Paul specifically, suffering is like a hammer that drives a nail deeper into the wood, right? Suffering drives Paul deeper into his experience with Christ, deeper into his relationship with God. So suffering is actually a good for the apostle. (coughs) Now, let me kind of just remind you a little bit from last week. Last week we learned from the verses before this that every single Christian was once alienated from God, separated from him, hostile in mind, thinking negative thoughts about God, doing evil deeds. We were disobedient to God. We learned that the lifestyle of a Christian is not one of entitlement or moral superiority. Rather, it should be marked by ongoing and deepening repentance and faith. That the Christians should never be surprised at their own sinfulness. Rather, we should be growing in our appreciation for the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. So every day when we are reminded by our own sinfulness, reminded by, you know, as we search our own heart and see its ugliness, or or as our spouse reminds us, or our kids remind us of our sinfulness, that we should marvel every day at the work of Jesus that has reconciled us to God in order to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before Jesus. So as our awareness of our own sinfulness continues to grow, so does our appreciation of the gospel. Now, all of this is foundational before we talk about suffering. If you don't get that settled first, then you're going to be constantly confused when suffering hits you. And here's the number one question that people say to me. When suffering hits them, they say, why me? Why me? And typically, in the framework of their theology, it is, what have I done to deserve this? Is God mad at me? Is God displeased with me? Have I done something to deserve this? What's going on in my life? And many of us have a theology whether or not it's actually written down, it might just be a practical theology in our heart that says, if I'm doing things right, then God's going to bless me and going to keep suffering far away from me. And that's a false gospel. It's actually bad theology. It's not true theology. And what we're going to see from the Apostle Paul today is um, it wasn't true of his life. 
because he's doing what God's called him to do, and he's rejoicing greatly. So what we're going to see from Paul here is four keys to rejoicing when suffering comes into our life. Four keys to rejoicing and suffering. Here, here they are right away, so you can know where we're going. One, know who you are. Two, know what you're called to do. Three, know why you are suffering. Four, know the riches of the glory of the mystery. Beautiful Pauline phrase. We're going to ju jump in. Number one, know who you are. Look at verse 23. <clears throat> verse 23 was from last week, but I want, I want you to see the very last section of it. He says this, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay? Paul, a minister. Now, here, this is an interesting phrase. I'm going to tell you right away that I do not like this translation. I think it confers to us an image that isn't conducive to its original meaning. Now, what do you think when you hear the word minister? You might be different from me, but for me, when I hear the word minister, I think religious professional. When I hear the word minister, I might even think professional Christian. I think of someone like me who's been to seminary, so I've earned something, right? Or maybe they've earned some respect in religious matters, or maybe a minister. Oh, they're the ones who get the special parking space right next to the church building, right? They get the, the beeline to the front door. Or maybe they're the person that wears special clothes to set them apart from the lady, right? They set them apart, and there, there should be something different about this person. But the Greek word here that is translated as minister is diakonos in the Greek. It's where we get the word deacon, and it simply means servant. This word is used two ways in the New Testament. 27 out of the 31 occurrences in the New Testament denotes a person who is in service to another, period. Any type of servant, a person in, servant to, in service to another. And then the other four times, it's used of the office of a deacon. And a deacon just literally means a servant of the church. We say around here that deacons, sir, they, they lead the church by serving. That's what a deacon does. They lead the church by serving. So in this context... <coughs> Paul is showing us, here it is, who he thinks he is, how he views himself. Now, we already know in the very first one, he said, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. You're an apostle? Well, what do you, you know, do you wear a big special hat? Right? Do you have a swagger like an apostle has in a swagger? Do you have a huge name tag with all your accolades on it? Is it like, a, you know, in the military that, the, you know, the higher your rank, the more flair you've got, the bigger peacock you are, right? The Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. Here, here's my job description. Servant. Servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sees his primary identity is that of a servant of Jesus and his church. And he says it twice, verse 23. And then look, he repeats it again in verse 25. He says, of which I became a minister, a servant, according, look, to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So God gave this to him. God called him to be a servant, now, here's the idea. From the verses before, Jesus came and lived the perfect life. Jesus reconciled in his body on the cross. He is the one who defeated sin and death. He's the one who took him from sinner to saint. Jesus is the one who's done all the work to accomplish salvation, to deliver him as holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, here's the idea. Jesus purchased for Paul a new identity, the identity of servant. So as Jesus served Paul in salvation, now Paul can serve Jesus' mission 
in the world. Jesus served Paul, changed his identity. Now Paul says, now I am a servant of Jesus Christ. First off, we see here, how do you rejoice in your suffering? You gotta know who you are. Know that you're a servant of Jesus Christ. If he served you, you serve his mission in the world. Secondly, you're no, you must know what you're called to do. As we're gonna see, Paul's service of Jesus is similar to that of a mailman, right? A mailman, what does a mailman do? A mailman delivers the news. A mailman delivers packages, right? They don't, they don't, they don't determine what's in those packages. They just deliver them. And you notice that we, they used to have a saying, right? Uh, I can't remember the saying off the top of my head now, but rain, sleet, or shine, the mailman's doing his job or mail lady's doing their job, right? And the difficulty of the job is determined a lot by the weather. They're just delivering packages. That's what they're doing. Now, imagine if they were... Now, I'm not going to get into it. I don't have time. So here's what Paul's saying. Here's my job description. Now, I don't want to... I don't want to throw any shade on the, the, the work of a gospel, the minister of the gospel or the, an apostle here. I don't want to downgrade it or denigrate it in any way because it is a high calling. Like God sent his own son as a preacher and as a, as a minister and as a servant. So there is a high calling to it. But the minister, the servant, is really just an errand boy of Jesus. That's what they are. They're just delivering the news. They're just delivering the mail. God has sent his word, and the minister is just bringing that word to bear to his world. Look how Paul described exactly what he's called to do. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me. Look, to make the word of God fully known. That's Paul's job description. I'm just delivering the mail here, folks. I'm just an errand boy of Jesus. <clears throat> Therefore, here, here's, so, so one, he's a servant. That's, he can rejoice because he's a servant. Two, all his, his job description is just, I'm just delivering the news here. I'm just an errand boy for Jesus. And three, therefore, it's, so why am I suffering? It's no surprise to Paul that he's suffering and it doesn't discourage him. In fact, when God revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, this is what he said in Acts 9, verse 16. Quote, for I will show him, I will show Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, just to be clear, there are two different types of suffering. There's persecution and affliction that is caused by people who reject Jesus and his message. And then there is suffering that is simply caused by being human in a broken world. In this context, Paul is specifically talking about the former type of suffering. Okay? Suffering for delivering the news. Suffering for speaking the word of God. Suffering for preaching the gospel. That he's experiencing opposition. Opposition. Spiritual, demonic opposition, but also physical and relational opposition. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is one spot where Paul goes into great detail of what it looks like to be a servant, what it looks like to be an errand boy of Jesus and experience some suffering because of it. Chapter 11, verse 23 through 28. <clears throat> Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. Now, he's kind of talking facetiously here. He's arguing back and forth. It's funny to argue about who's the best servant, but anyways, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says. Look, with far greater labors, far more imprisonment. Now, listen, there's something human about this. If you've ever been in the trenches with someone, so I remember two-a-days in football, and you're talking 100-degree heat in the middle of July, right? 
And I remember my coaches yelling things like, we're out in North Scott, you know, feel that cool breeze blowing off the Mississippi. There's nothing blowing, right? You're dying and you're just sweating like crazy. But then you would get, you would be in between practices and you would be like bragging over like how difficult practice was and how hard it was and how, you know, there's something there's something like human solidarity is found when things get difficult, right? Whether you're in the trenches with somebody or whether you're in difficult sport or athletic competition, whatever it is, something happens when things get difficult. And Paul's kind of drawing on that reality here. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, you're a servant. Well, let me show you my report. Let me tell you how I'm suffering as an errand boy of Jesus. Keep reading. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Now, many times they thought that 40 lashes would kill a person, and so they gave them 39 with beating them with whips and Think usually pieces of glass on the end of those whips to rip the back open and to cause as much damage as possible. Five times that happened to the brother. So if you've ever watched, you know, a, a, a movie representation of slavery in America and you see a, a slave take off their robe or open up their back and you see their back just shredded, that's what Paul's back would have looked like. Why? For preaching the gospel. Keep reading. Often near death. Five times I received at the hands of these 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Now listen, so many people I meet in missional community, when they start going through difficulty in their life, immediately they're like, I'm doing something wrong. Oh, maybe this isn't God's will for me. Paul never had that. Like, I mean, like, okay, after the third time I've been beaten with an inch of my life, I think he's calling me to be quiet for a while. You know, I need a sabbatical here. I need to take some time off. I need to go away, right? Paul never interprets his discipline, his suffering he never interprets it as, I must be doing something wrong. I must be in the, law, the wrong line of work. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. That sh- one of those shipwrecked times, there's this story in Acts where Paul gets shipwrecked and everybody on this island is like most of us. They interpret negative experiences negatively as a curse from the gods. And they think, oh, this guy, this guy's probably, you know, cursed by the gods. And then a snake bites him. And they're like, oh yeah, he's definitely cursed by the gods. And then Paul shakes it off, throws it into the fire. He keeps living. They're like, no, he is a god. And he's like, no, I'm not. What is wrong with you people? I'm neither one cursed by the gods, nor am I a god. I'm a servant of God the one and only God. And I'm facing opposition because of the message that I preach. But God is sustaining me in the midst of this opposition. Keep reading. Verse 26, on frequent journeys. That means I'm on the run or moving all the time, taking the gospel to different places, in dangers from rivers. What does that mean? You have to cross rivers when there are no Bridges at that time. And some of the Roman roads, there, you know, there's no bridges. When it's high, when the water's high, that's dangerous to cross. Dangers from robbers. He's traveling with just a few men, probably not armed. Danger from my own people. He's talking about the Jews. Danger from Gentiles. So he doesn't fit into any category. He doesn't have any group that he can feel comfortable with. The Republicans and the Democrats both hate him. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. 
Danger from false brothers. Here's the deal. When you are a persecuted minority, as they are in China, as Christians are in China right now, you have to be really wary of who you let into the fellowship. Did you know this? When believers in the early church wanted to be baptized, they had to go through a three-year catechesis process before they were baptized. Why? Because they were afraid of undercover brothers coming in, getting baptized, and then ratting them out to the authorities, and they would all be killed. So they wanted to make, they weren't just here to see professions of faith, believe in Jesus in your heart. We want to see it in your life. Three-year track record before we'll welcome you into the brotherhood. So what would they do? They would sing together, they would preach the gospel, and then they would say, all you people who aren't baptized, we'll see you next week and they would dismiss them, and then the believers who had been baptized would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That's what they do every single week. Paul says, I don't know if this person here in my missional community or this person here that's listening to the gospel, I don't know if they're really a spy sent by someone to kill me. Constant danger. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul is a pastor. He's an apostle who's overseeing preaching of the gospel, churches being planted. And he's like, all those churches out there, every day they weigh on me. I'm concerned as a good shepherd would be, how are they going? How are they doing? How is their soul? How is their church? And it weighs heavily. It's a weight of leadership and responsibility on his shoulders. And Paul's speaking to the Colossians here. So you got all that. Plus he's in prison right now as he's writing to the Colossians. Paul has never even been face-to-face with these Colossians, and yet he's saying, I am suffering for your sake. And this is what he says in our text this morning. Look at, now I rejoice in my, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So I'm suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now that is a kind of a confusing statement. What does it mean to be filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? We saw last week, in one sense, there is nothing lacking in Christ's sufferings. Christ's suffering accomplished perfect, total atonement for everyone who will ever claim Christ. There's, he is, his sacrifice was sufficient so what does he mean here? Well, here's the idea. Think about it like this. When, when we go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 4, where Paul gets converted by Jesus. Do you, know what Jesus, do you remember what Jesus says to Paul? He appears, Jesus is already in heaven, he's already glorified. He appears to Paul and he says this. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus has been glorified. Well, what, what's he talking about? No, I'm not... Paul could could have said, well, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting your followers. I'm persecuting Christians. But here's the reality. Jesus so identifies with his people, he calls us his body, that when his body is being persecuted, he is still being persecuted. In that way, anytime a Christian suffers, they are, in a sense, suffering for Jesus and, quote, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So when Christians suffer for the sake of the gospel, when they are willing to lose friends, lose jobs, lose their reputations, maybe even lose their life for the sake of the gospel, they are suffering for the sake of Jesus. Now, right now, friend of mine sent me some links this week. Nigerian Christians are suffering and being killed by the Islamic State right now. Their churches are being burned. They are being lined up and beheaded and killed and shot and blown up 
You know, we don't hear that very much. But right now, it takes a lot to be a Christian in Nigeria and in China. Now, so what Paul's saying here is, I'm not suffering for the church in an atoning manner. That, that's work's already been done by Jesus. But I'm suffering as a servant, as an errand boy of Jesus, just like the mailman suffers to deliver the news. If it's 30 below, they're carrying the news and they're suffering. Paul is suffering as a servant, as a minister of Jesus to work out what Christ has accomplished on the cross. In other words, Christ accomplished it totally on the cross, but that message doesn't save anyone until the mailman delivers the news. The gospel must be preached. The gospel must be declared. The gospel must be shared. We don't just sit back and pray, God's sovereign, he'll work it out. God's sovereign, so we work it out. He works it out through his servants. Now here's the principle. Servants of Jesus Work out in real life what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. The suffering of Jesus on the cross accomplished total salvation. But that act must be declared to the ends of the earth in the midst of whatever opposition may come. Listen, we enjoy a lot of freedom in our country. It might not always be so. The government can't, doesn't tell us what we can and cannot say or what we should and should not say. And so if in this crazy world of exclusivity, inclusivity, we, our society tells us what's inclusive and, to, and basically, you know, Christians are now excluded on the basis that we're not inclusive enough, right? We might be facing some persecution, and our, we don't get to decide what we do, honestly. Our calling is the same. We declare the gospel, come what may. We declare the word of God, come what may. And that means every Christian, every faithful member of the body of Christ will suffer in some way as they live out their identities as a servant of Jesus. Now, here's, the, here's the, the kicker. Here's where we can see our connection with the Apostle Paul. Though we may never go to foreign countries, though we may never be imprisoned, though we may never be beaten, we still share the same core identity as the Apostle. If we understand who we are in Christ, Jesus has served us and we are also his servants. And so we don't have a choice what we declare. We don't have a choice what truth we live out. We are servants of Jesus. And as we share the gospel with friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors, we will experience some form of suffering, whether it be people turning our back on us, whether it be us losing our job, us losing favor in the society, whatever it is, we will experience some suffering. Excuse me. <clears throat> now. <clears throat> Uh-oh. <clears throat> Help me out, Sal. All right. <clears throat> I'm afraid that many of us have forgotten how many people that we have never met have suffered greatly in order to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. Here's just one example. In the 16th century, the church of Jesus Christ had been corrupted from the inside by power and all kinds of different things. And they were sell basically selling salvation. Um, they wanted to build some big churches. They wanted to reach more people. They needed money to do that. And so they came up with this thing called indulgences, the Roman Catholic Church, where they could, they, you could buy people out of purgatory. You could buy yourself out of 
sin, you could sin and then go and give some money and receive penance. All right, that's cool. I'm out. Uh, you know, and the, the saying was every time the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And there was one monk, Martin Luther, who was at, absolutely, up by reading the scriptures and seeing the gospel and understanding the true nature of the gospel, was absolutely appalled by this. And the people didn't know any better because um, the mass was in Latin and the people didn't even speak Latin. Can you imagine coming to a church service speaking a different language? Right? Sometimes you walk out of here and go, I don't really get anything out of that. Right? And it just because, you know, Imagine it being in a different language, right? So what did the, the, the Martin Luther, he, he writes his 95 thesis and nails it on the, the church at Wittenberg. And he says, here's 95 things where the church is failing right now. The church is screwing up. The church is messed up. And he wanted to shift the church. He wanted to correct the church. He wanted to reform the church. Talked about one of those things last week. But the church didn't want to be reformed. The church didn't want to hear anything from a little pope, or a little, I'm sorry, the pope didn't want to hear anything from a little monk. And so he was called to account, and they told him, recant. And if you don't recant, you can be excommunicated and killed. And under a long, it happens all kind of a long thing, but this is, this is what Martin Luther says. He's standing before his, the court that's judging him, and he says this, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Now that moment, that is some bad stuff right there. Martin Luther was a bad mamma jamma. He had all kind of issues. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't Jesus, but that was big. That, that was under threat of death and really under threat of war. They thought that this could cause a war, this, this split in the, in the church. Now, you might, not say, you might say, what, okay, 16th century Germany, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Well, you, you, should, you should care about it because it has a prof it's had a profound impact upon you. Not only the fact that we're not Roman Catholic and we would all be still Roman Catholic, but it's had a profound impact on you and your idea of what is right and what is wrong. Now, you might not even be a Christian in here this morning. And yet many, if not all, of your most deeply held beliefs are actually based upon Christianity. I'm reading a fascinating book right now called Empire of the Summer Moon. And it's written by a historian, and it's a history of the Comanche Indians and many of the tribes of the Great Plains. And it's the most violent and disgusting book I've ever read, and I can't stop reading it, okay? Uh, one of the points the author makes is that the Native Americans had a totally different set of morals. In fact, he calls them, he's not a Christian, he calls them totally immoral. They would raid other tribes just because they wanted horses and women. They would rape the women, gang rape the women. They would kill the babies throw them down, choke them with their bare hands, tie ropes around them, drag them behind horses. Babies. When they, ca when they captured um, women from other tribes and they were done with them and they were too old to be of use to them, they would burn their noses off. When they captured prisoners, they would cut the bottoms of their feet off and force them to walk through the desert. They would sleep with other men's wives in their own tribes and then just have to pay, give them a horse or something for it. This was all normal and good. There was, they had nothing wrong with it. There was nothing wrong with rape, raping women. There was nothing wrong with torturing people. 
Now, do you think there's something wrong with that? <laughs> do you find that offensive? Yeah, of course. We would say, of course we do, right? Well, why do you? Why do you think individuals have a right to not be raped or not be tortured or not be plundered? Why do you think that? It's not an original concept to the United States of America. I say to this land, if you know what I mean. Right? Right? I could, I could ask you, why are you here this morning? Why are you a Christian? Because someone before you suffered as an errand boy or girl of Jesus. See, what Martin Luther did in the 16th century, that separated, that basically solidified individual human rights, that they were no longer under the church as an official authority, that the word of, they could be, one person could be captive to the word of God. And the word of God was above even the church. And that freedom from religion and freedom of religion drove people to settle in the United States seeking to, be, to have a Christian understanding of the world, that individuals have human rights, that there's dignity to human beings, that there's a certain moral code, a Judeo-Christian moral code, and that moral code infiltrated the United States. And one of the reasons, because of the Reformation, making its way to United States of America, we read about the... We read about the Comanche Indian and we're like, that's savage. I can't even imagine that. But if it wasn't for the Reformation, if it wasn't for the influence of Christianity, maybe you'd still have those same values. See, it's not common knowledge. It's not a... Somehow we're born with this sense of morality. No, this is passed down to us from Christianity. The reason we have this sense of morality in the United States now is because of the influence of the Reformation and the influence of the spread of the gospel to the colonies and to here. What's interesting, so many people who critique Christianity are actually standing on the very foundation of Christianity. They would have no way to critique it if it wasn't for Christianity. Well, I think God's judgmental. Who cares? What are, you, what are you talking about? Compared to who? From what standard? From the standard of Christianity. Well, that doesn't make sense. All right, so here, here's the four things that we're seeing this morning as I'm trying to wrap up and close. We gotta know who we are. We gotta, to, to rejoice in our suffering, we gotta know that we're servants. Two, we gotta know what we're called to do. We're called to serve Jesus by spreading the gospel. Three, we got to know why we're suffering. We're not suffering because there's something wrong with us. We're suffering because the message of the gospel is so, hmm, it's so beautiful and it's so good and it's so controversial that it is, it demands opposition. That we are working out what Christ accomplished on the cross. And lastly, to rejoice in our suffering, we have to know the mystery. We have to know the riches of the glory of the mystery. Here's the key to rejoicing in our sufferings. Listen, the greatness of the suffering is nothing compared to the glory of the mystery. See, I, I was a wrestler in high school and in college, and wrestlers pride themselves on being able to go through the most torturous of experiences possible. We put ourselves in a 100-degree room. We're wrestling man against man, we're fighting with everything we've got. Most of the time, we're cutting weight. We don't have food in our bodies. And we're proud of the fact that we can get through it and we can just, like, almost, we enjoy it, right? And we're doing it to have our hand raised at the end. That's it. That's the only, that's the only thing we're doing it for. That's the goal. But when I do raise, when you raise my hand, I get to look at the other guy and he's going to cry to his mom. And I'm like, I'm better than you. That's what, that's what, that's why we endure the suffering. Now, the Olympian, he endures all the hardship, all the difficulty. Why? For the wreath and for the gold medal. That's what he's doing it for. Christians 
we're suffering because of something far greater. A, a reality that's, Paul calls it here, a mystery. And this word mystery is used 28 times in the New Testament. Almost all of those cases, it refers to two things. One, Old Testament prophecy beginning its fulfillment, okay? And two, this fulfillment is unexpected from the, other, from the former Old Testament vantage point, okay? So it's like, it's like this. A mystery is like a time-release capsule that it's, it was preached and declared for hundreds or thousands of years, but its fulfillment lay dormant and misunderstood or not totally understood until Jesus came. And what's this great mystery that, boom, all of a sudden it's sprouted, all of a sudden it's opened up, and all of a sudden we can get in and we can see it? Look at it right here. The mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now popped. Now it's revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the, what's the mystery? What is it, Paul? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's the great mystery? No matter who you are, Gentile Jew, no matter your history, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your age, your gender, or your education level, Jesus died for you. And he didn't do this just so that you could go to heaven when you die. He did it so heaven could come into you now. That Jesus, by his spirit, inhabits the soul of everyone who puts their faith in him. That Jesus sticks closer than a brother. That Jesus moves into us. He, he does it because he delights in us. This is the good news of the gospel. 1 John 4, 4 says, For he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. Three things that suffering does. Suffering with Jesus makes us more aware of Jesus' ongoing presence with us. See, as I'm going through difficulty and I don't think I can make it, Jesus on the inside says, trust me, you can make it. Paul often said, Jesus has told me that I'm actually, I'm gonna suffer in another city later, so I'm not gonna die. It's like, is that encouraging to you, Paul? I'm gonna make it out. I got a lot more suffering ahead of me, right? What's that do? It, it gives him a buoyancy. It gives him a resiliency. It gives him a joy. That Jesus suffered on the cross and now, and he accomplished salvation and now I'm working out that salvation with whoever he leads me to and I'm suffering right now and it's got meaning behind it. I'm suffering with Jesus and that's driving me deeper into my relationship with Jesus. I'm more aware of Christ in me, strengthening me, empowering me, motivating me, keeping, preserving me. Suffering with Jesus makes us more aware of Jesus' ongoing presence with us. Secondly, suffering with Jesus for one another, Christians, and for those who don't yet know him, unites us in a way that nothing else can. See, here's the reality. When he that is within us is more important to us than any other external thing about us, it creates a community like no other. What matters to me is Christ in you, not your politics. What matters to me is Christ in you, not your socioeconomic background. What matters to me is Christ in you, not your favorite sport or football team or hobby or whatever it is that superficially unites us in our society. When Christ in you becomes more important than everything else, it creates a cohesive community that cannot be reproduced anywhere else in our world. Third, suffering with Jesus, with joy, is an apologetic to the gospel to a watching world. Now, what is that? What's an apologetic of the gospel, Justin? It means the, the world looks in and goes, 
They're sacrificing because they really believe this thing to be true. They're caring for each other in a way I've never seen before. They're taking care of one another in a way I've never seen before. Look what they're going through, and yet they're not despondent. They're not depressed. They're not overwhelmed by anxiety. They're doing it with a joy. They're doing it with a smile on their face. They're suffering together. They would... They wouldn't even have to suffer if they stopped preaching the gospel or stopped believing the gospel, and yet they're continuing to do it. They have patience in the midst of suffering. People look in on that, and that is compelling to them. That's how the gospel is spreading so fast in China. A life that is defined by the gospel, a life that can't be explained outside of the gospel. I believe it's still good news and attractive to our world. So here we go. We see Paul was willing to suffer as an errand boy of Jesus. He was willing to spend the rest of his life suffering as he took the message of the gospel from city to city to the Gentiles because the content of the message was so good. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are we willing to do the same? Father, I pray that we would be willing to do the same. I pray that our lives would be defined in the way that Paul's was, that we would see ourselves as servants, errand boy and girls of Jesus. We're delivering the news. We're delivering the message of the gospel, and we are not surprised when opposition comes. And even in the midst of great opposition, you would give us a supernatural joy knit us together in a community that is beautiful from the outside world to see and may you draw many into your kingdom for your glory and their good. And Father, as we come to celebrate your table this morning, would you seal the deal for us? Remind us once again of what you've done for us on the cross, that, the, that your body was broken for us. As we break the bread, we're reminded of your body that was broken for us how you served us so that we can now serve you. And as your body was ripped open and as your blood was shed to cover all of our sins, Father, we take the cup and we drink it and we're reminded that all of our sins have been washed away. Thank you for communicating the gospel to us in word, but also in reality and action through this meal before us today. Would you speak to your people? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.